The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Before we open God's Word, we always need to make sure that we are prepared for worship, and it looks like there's a bit of a distraction down here. Oh, there's a spider down here? Okay. Well, while we are... uh, Preparing ourselves for worship and finding it necessary, if necessary, to utilize 1 John 1 9. Maybe we can take care of the spider during the time of silent prayer so that we don't have a lot of jumping and movement in the middle of the message distracting everybody. Let's bow our heads and prepare to pray. Father, we thank You so much that we have the privilege and opportunity to study Your Word, that Your Word is sufficient for every issue in our lives, and in it You not only tell us that that You have solved the sin problem, which is the greatest problem that we will ever face, but that on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, every other problem has been solved and can be solved in our lives. Now, Father, as we study Your Word, we pray that You would make it clear to us that it might shed its light in the areas of our soul, which in the process of being renovated, that we might think your thoughts after you and that the mind of Christ may dominate in our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, and we continue our study of what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. This is one of the most important doctrines that we can study And this is one of the most crucial passages for us to study in order to understand this this whole concept. In Galatians 5.16, we read, But I say, walk by means of the Spirit. And then we are given a a promise, an unconditional result. You will not. It's a very strong negation in the Greek, and it means it is absolutely impossible for you to carry out the desire of the flesh, that is, the sin nature. So what we see here is that there is this contrast between the sin nature and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And about three weeks ago, I think, we began to analyze what the Scripture teaches us about the sin nature. And this is important because so few people really take the time to study what the Scripture says about the sin nature, and I think very few of us are willing to 
look in the mirror and admit the horrors in our soul that the sin nature describes. And because people fail to take into account the realities of the sin nature and the depravity of mankind, they consequently operate on a unrealistic, an unrealistic view of man. There are a lot of various disciplines in academia from the realm of psychology and sociology to political theory, advertisement, all kinds of different things that all build their concepts on an understanding of the nature and makeup of man. Everything truly from economics, moral theory, law, ethics, from advertising to sales, everything is predicated upon a certain understanding of who and what man is. Now, if you're operating on a false view of man, then whatever you construct upon that is going to necessarily be false. This is one of the great dividing issues in all ideology. Uh, Thomas Sowell, who I know some of you read his uh, uh, editorials, he's a very conservative uh, thinker, political thinker, has written a wonderful book called The Conflict of Vision. His basic thesis is that, that all issues, and everybody tends to always line up on one of two sides of every issue, and you always tend to line up on the same side of the issue with everybody else, because the underlying problem, the, I mean the underlying issue, is how people view the essential makeup of man. Is man inherently good, or is man inherently evil? And how you answer that question will affect a myriad of details in life. How you solve problems, how you face adversity, how, the, the way you think people can find happiness and meaning in life, how government is run, the basis for law and constitutional interpretation, not to mention the most important issue of all, which is your own spiritual life and your own relationship to God. So all of that is to show you how important it is to look at what the Scripture says about the sin nature. And today we have the weird or strange problem of trying to concentrate over all the noise from the rain outside. So we can be thankful that the Lord has provided us rain, but on the other hand, we need to concentrate a little bit over all of the, the noise and distraction. Now, in the last two weeks, we've looked at what the Scripture teaches us about sin and that we have a sin nature and that it comes from Adam and that every single human being is born with the sin nature. They are born totally depraved. And that term does not mean man is as bad as he can be, that man is absolutely evil, but that man is, in every category of his being, every category of his makeup, the totality of his makeup, every category from his self-consciousness, his mentality, his emotion, his uh, volition, every category of his soul is affected and impacted by the sin nature and is distorted so that the original image of God, that man was created in God's image and likeness, that although that image still resides, there is still a residue of that image, it has been distorted and marred so that Adam's original sin has caused a constitutional defect. It is not a disease that man has, it is a constitutional defect. If it is a disease, then the problem is the solution to the problem is much more superficial and simple. But if it is a constitutional defect, then the solution must be much more radical. The solution, of course, to man's sin and the sin nature was paid was the payment 
of Jesus Christ on the cross as our substitutionary atonement. That provides the basis for solving the problem of the sin nature. But before we get into that, I want to break things down a little more. Uh, Beginning about where I ended last time, we need a little review. And I want to look at the pathology of the sin nature this morning. The pathology of the sin nature. So point number one under the pathology of the sin nature is definition. What is pathology? Pathology is the scientific study of the nature of a disease. And in this case, I just said the sin nature is not a disease but a constitutional defect. We will define it as the scientific study of the nature of this constitutional defect and its causes, processes, development, and consequences. So a pathology is the scientific study. Now, the way you do a scientific study is you collect all of the available data on the subject and then you correlate it, categorize it, and classify it. The data that we are examining is the information in Scripture. That's how you do theology. That's why it is said that theology is the queen of the sciences. Not in the sense that it is a science like biology or botany or zoology or physics, but it is a science in the sense that you have a field of data, and that data is the Bible. And that through the use of observation and an inductive study method, then you correlate all of the facts that you have in the Scriptures, and you relate them together, you classify them according to topic, you categorize them, and as a result of that, you learn what the mind of God, the mind of Christ has to say about all of the various subjects addressed in the Scripture. So we're going to look at the pathology of the sin nature. In other words, how does it operate? What are its causes, its processes, development, and consequences? Point number two, the sin nature was originally acquired when Adam sinned. So this means that it is not normal. Everything since the fall of man, everything in human environment, is abnormal. By that I mean that God created the universe perfect. He created the earth perfect. He created the environment perfect. He created the animal and plant kingdoms perfect. And He created man perfect. And He placed man in, perfect man in a perfect environment. And He gave man volition. And that volition is the issue. And man, in the, represented by Adam, had one choice before him. There was only one sin that Adam could commit in the garden, and that had to do with whether or not he obeyed God with respect to the prohibition of eating the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So perfect man in perfect environment knew no sickness, had no, no problems, no adversity to face that he could not handle through the provision of God. And so all of his thinking was perfect, all of his perceptions were perfect, and yet once he sinned, he acquired a sin nature which totally changed his makeup and had a devastating effect upon his environment. So the environment was no longer perfect and he was no longer perfect. It affected every aspect of his soul, including his his self-consciousness, his mentality, his emotion, his volition, and his conscience. That sin nature is passed on genetically to all of his descendants. The only human being that has been born without a sin nature is our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who because he was born of a virgin did not acquire the genetically passed on sin nature. He was born without a sin nature and he was born perfect and lived his life perfect and he never committed any act of sin. For that reason, he was able to go to the cross and die as our substitute. Now, every single person in human history is born with this constitutional defect. That means we are all marred at the very essence of our being by the sin nature. We lack perfect righteousness. We are all born minus righteousness. We are all born... And God, because God is plus R, and because the righteousness of God cannot have fellowship with the unrighteousness of man, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So that mankind is repugnant to God and obnoxious to God. Now, I keep stressing that because we have a tremendous tendency because of our sin nature, to think that there is some little something about us that is pleasing to God, that is attractive to God, and that somehow we can do something that gains God's approbation. But God approves of nothing because the very nature of man, at the very core of his being, is a sin nature. Everything that comes forth from man is tainted by this sin nature. Whether that involves sinful deeds on the one hand, or whether that involves relatively good things on the other hand, everything that we do, apart from the grace of God, has its source and origin in this sin nature, and that means that it is rejected by God. And I'm not talking about relative good because we can compare ourselves to other people and there are certainly good things that we can do that are helpful and beneficial to mankind and beneficial to ourselves. But in comparison with the absolute standard of God, we are repugnant and obnoxious to God. From the moment we are born, when we're lying there in the crib, cooing and gooing and squirming around and smiling and and looking so wonderful and so innocent, we are not. We are repugnant to God. Therefore, point number three, no person is born innocent. No person is born innocent because they are all, they have all received the guilt of Adam's sin. This is not guilt because they have committed sin. This is guilt because Adam's original sin has been imputed to their sin nature, and so they are guilty. We sin because we are by nature sinners. We do not, we are not sinners because we sin. Man is inherently evil and left to his own devices. He is bent on making life work apart from God. Now, when we come to talk about children, it's important to lay down a few definitions and a few important points. If a child dies before the age of accountability, then they are saved. They go directly to heaven on the basis of the fact that God is righteous and the issue at salvation, just as the issue at the fall was volition, they have not reached a 
chronological and or spiritual or mental age whereby they can understand the issues and make a responsible choice in relation to the gospel. Now, this age of accountability varies from culture to culture. In some cultures, for example, in the United States, I know of situations in Christian homes where children, because of the ministry of their parents in Sunday school or five-day clubs, good news clubs, different things of that nature, have been exposed to the gospel on a repeated basis and as early as two and a half have on their own initiative asked the question, Mommy, I want to go to heaven. Can I trust Jesus as my Savior too? I know of one particular case where that happens. So it can happen culturally. It can happen very early because of certain factors. In other cultures where someone is never exposed to any sort of Christianity in a Stone Age or primitive culture, for example, in, in Africa or Irian Jaya or someplace like that, it may not, God consciousness may not come until adolescent years or even adult years. It all depends on many different factors, and God is aware for each individual, individual just exactly when that age of accountability is. The age of accountability, therefore, therefore, means the age at which a child becomes conscious of the existence of God. Now remember, according to Romans 1, 19 and 20, that the, there is plenty of evidence throughout the creation of the invisible attributes of God so that, the Scripture says, they are without excuse. Every human being knows God exists. Even the atheist who shouts from the mountaintops is fully aware in the deepest recesses of their soul, although they would never admit it, not even at the pain of death, that God exists. Romans uh, 1, 18 uh, and 19 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because man is unrighteous, the orientation of his soul is to suppress the truth. Now, some people want to take this as a gnomic present, which would make it characteristic of every human being, and that is a subjective decision that is usually informed by hyper-Calvinism. What this means is that of men, those who suppress the truth, that is, those who suppress the truth, this is negative volition at God consciousness. So, negative volition at God consciousness means that they know the truth, they have perceived the truth, and from that point on, they are actively suppressing the truth. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. That is, to who? To those who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That means every unbeliever, every atheist, is, who is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness knows about God. It's evident within them because God made it evident to them. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That means that no heathen in Africa, South America, 
or Harlem is ignorant to the point that they can claim that, that I have an excuse nobody ever told me. God says that there is more than enough evidence just by looking up at the stars in the sky and looking around you for, that I exist and for you to be held accountable to that. So, the age of accountability means that when a person reaches an age when they are aware of this evidence, they recognize the existence of God, and they are able to understand the gospel, that at that point they have a choice. They can choose either to know more about God, or they can suppress the knowledge. If they go positive at God consciousness, and they decide to know more about God, it may be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years before the gospel is ever made clear to them or they accept the gospel. Interesting, just as a side note, you can also see scenarios where people are positive at God consciousness, but then afterwards they, in their search for truth, go through all sorts of meanderings and circumlocutions, and they get involved in one religious activity after another. And just because you see somebody who is caught up and fanatic about their cultic involvement or atheism or anything else does not mean that at some point in their life they either weren't positive or won't be positive. There are many cases, and we hear testimonies every now and then of people who go through these kinds of permutations in their life, searching, looking, going from one religious activity to another, and then finally they hear the gospel and it's made clear to them and they trust Christ as their Savior. But every child reaches the age of accountability at different stages. They're able to understand the gospel and to make this choice. That's why they're accountable. Okay? Now, I want to warn you. Some, recently I heard this. I'd never heard it before. But I guess if you hear it once, other people have the same point of confusion. The age of accountability does not mean that we are not accountable for our decisions and actions until we reach that age. Okay, let me make that clear. The age of accountability does not mean you are not accountable or responsible for your actions until you reach that age. See, some people might get that, take that assumption from that decision because what happens is from the point a child is born until they're, oh, let's say three, four, five years of age, we have a tendency in this country in Western civilization, to think of them as innocents, as not guilty. And what I'm trying to get across to you as the foundation of our thinking is that that's not reality. Reality is they have a sin nature, and that sin nature affects every aspect of their being and decision-making process from the point of birth on. So that brings us to point four. Point three, recognize several conclusions, and that is that no one is born innocent. If any child dies before the age of accountability, they are saved, and that the age of accountability does not mean they're not accountable for their actions or responsible until they reach that age. It has only to do with their salvation. Point four, the sin nature, rehearsal, reminder of our definition. The sin nature is the an orientation to
to independence from God. That is the essential meaning of the sin nature. It means that we are asserting our autonomy. That's the word. It means, it comes from two Greek words. Here it is, autonomy. It comes from two Greek words, autos meaning self and namas meaning law. The basic orientation of the sin nature is I will determine my own destiny. I will define reality on my own terms. I can make life work apart from God. Frankly, that's the a reminder of the five I wills uttered by Lucifer in Isaiah uh, chapter 14. Culminating in the fifth I will, I will be like the Most High. We think that we can be independent of God. So therefore, the sin nature is defined as the propensity, inclination, and proclivity to violate the character and standards of God and the desire to make life work without God. It's the propensity, inclination, and proclivity to violate the character and standards of God and to make the desire to make life work apart from God. We think that we can define meaning, purpose, happiness in life. We think that on the basis of our own experience, intellect, native ability, that we not only can come to an accurate understanding of these concepts, but that we can define how to get there. We can develop strategies for achieving happiness and meaning in life. And therefore, we think that on the basis of our own native ability, apart from God, apart from the grace of God, we can solve problems on our own. We know enough. It is this inherent orientation of the sinner's fallen soul. Now, the sin nature, we know, is motivated by lust patterns at the very core of the sin nature. These lust patterns will move the sin nature in one of two directions. We call these trends. And you either trend towards asceticism or legalism, or you have a trend towards antinomianism, licentiousness, and lasciviousness. Furthermore, you tend to operate in one of two areas, either an area of weakness that produces personal sins, or an area of strength that produces human good or dead works. Now, the thing is, we get all caught up in the problem of dead, dead works. We do many good and wonderful things, and we can come up with all kinds of ideas and solutions to our problems that make life work very well. The unbeliever can gain a certain modicum of control in his life that, that makes him seem very happy, very stable, and that he really has a handle on the issues of life. And that is very deceptive because we never do. And this is all part of the pathology of the sin nature. That we can get so caught up in human good and operating on morality and asceticism and legalism that in fact we're like the Pharisees. We end up in moral degeneracy, but we're quite content and we find ways in which life works for us. We have managed to figure out ways to deal with any pain, suffering in our lives. Some people go through circumstances where they don't have a lot of overt pain and suffering to deal with. And so their lives look fairly stable and fairly comfortable. 
But what Scripture tells us is that no matter what you do, if its fruit or if its root is the sin nature, the result is, even though it may bring a level of stability in life, and your life you may be quite functional in life, no matter what your circumstances might be. It has no spiritual value, and it will ultimately be destructive to the spiritual life. So just a reminder, the sin nature, motivated by lust patterns, leads to two trends, asceticism or antinomianism in opposite directions, and we either produce personal sins from the area of weakness or human good from the area of strength. Now, point number five. We have to remember that the sin nature is the only and exclusive control factor for the soul at birth. The sin nature is the only and exclusive control factor for the soul at birth. Your soul is the real you. It's made up. We break it down academically into components, but in reality these components interface in very close ways. So we have a mentality, a self-consciousness, emotion, which is the responder in the soul. We have a conscience, which is where our norms and standards reside. And we have volition, which is the decider in the soul. Whether we realize it or not, we are always functioning volitionally. You may not be aware that you are making choices, but you are making choices. A lot of people go through life and they're never very volitionally aware. They just feel like they're following the, the, uh, whatever their, their, uh, their body wants them to do and that they're programmed that way. They just never think about doing anything different or exercising any level of self-control. Now, out here, residing in the cell structure of the body is the sin nature. Sin nature has a material source and an immaterial influence. And it is continually seeking control of the soul. And as an unbeliever, that is the only control factor. That means that as far as the production is concerned, the only production is that which is either human good or personal sin. The unbeliever... Because he does not possess a human spirit, there is no doctrine resident in the soul whatsoever. There is no Holy Spirit resident in the soul. The unbeliever cannot produce anything else, cannot make a decision that is based on anything other than human viewpoint. And therefore, no matter how good, wonderful, nice it might be, or how close it might line up with Scripture... For you see, there are many moral people who will apply many biblical principles in their lives and as a result have a level of stability in their lives. But nevertheless, it's still human good and personal sin. What does the Scripture say in Isaiah 64, 6? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Now remember what the Scripture says. We are born enslaved to the sin nature. We're born in bondage to sin. Romans 6, 16, and 17 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, that's your gnomic principle. If you go out and you 
hire yourself to someone or give yourself to them as a slave to obey them at all times, then you are their slave and they are their master, you, they are your master and you are under their complete control at all times. Paul goes on to say that therefore, by analogy, you present yourself to sin, then you are a slave of sin resulting in death. If you present yourself to righteousness, then you are a slave to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin. See, as a believer, you are positionally no longer a slave to sin. The power of the sin nature has been broken. It is broken at the point of salvation. You still have a sin nature. Its, its presence is still very real. Its influence is still very strong. But you still have a sin nature. But you no longer have to follow its dictates. Whereas up to the point of salvation, you are a slave to sin and you always have to follow the dictates of the sin nature. What does that mean? That means from infancy to salvation, you are a slave to sin. Every single human being is. And so the only decisions they can make, the only actions they can take, flow from the sin nature. I hope I've made myself clear. Because where I'm going to go from this is going to be a little challenging and might be a little upsetting to some of you. It's hard for us to get our handle around some of this unless we start off with the right presuppositions. That takes us to about the point we stopped last time, point number six. Since no child is born a believer, there is no option in life for any child but the sin nature control and human viewpoint problem-solving techniques. Let me say that again. Since no child is born a believer, there is no option for them in life other than sin nature control and human viewpoint problem-solving techniques. So that whenever the unbeliever faces the onslaught of adversity or the pleasures of prosperity... The only way to deal with it is what? Sin nature control. So when pleasant or adverse circumstances present themselves, that young child growing up has to make certain decisions as to how they are going to respond or react to that pleasure or pain. And the only options available are wrong. Think about the implications of that. It doesn't matter whether you're growing up in a wonderful home with Christian parents who are protecting you and taking care of you or whether you're growing up in the, in the, on the streets, in the slums, whether you're growing up as an orphan or whether you're growing up in the United States or in Europe or in Asia. The, the environment is not the issue. The issue is going to be volition and what's in the soul. And the only thing that's in the soul for Every single person is sin nature. So what happens in the pathology of sin is as a child begins to grow, he's going to receive input through his senses. He learns to taste. And it takes a while for all of those taste buds to connect and to get to a point where you develop a fairly sophisticated palate. You may not be until you're in your 30s before you can distinguish a lot of different flavors. So all of these things are, are processes. It takes time to develop all of those, those senses. You begin to develop 
your tactile senses of touch. That's why you give your kids all kinds of real nubby things and slick toys and, and coarse toys, different things like that to develop uh, the sense of touch. They begin to recognize voices. And those that they hear the most, they recognize. They, they may be, I don't know what the exact age is, but three months, four months, they begin to recognize their mother's voice and their father's voice. And then they also begin to uh, develop with the sense of smell and various different smells become familiar to them. And as they grow and mature physically, then their ability to recognize these things develops even more. At the same time, the child, from the moment they're in that crib, began to go through various pleasurable and painful experiences. They have the pleasure of being held by their mother and the warmth and the comfort of being held by the mother. They have the pain of, of just hunger pains and, and, and being hungry, and they decide, well, okay, I've got this pain in my stomach. How am I going to get that solved? And so they learn to cry, and they learn to scream. And as soon as they cry and they scream, they get a little attention, and then they get some food. And so that brain processes that very rapidly, and they realize that they have a strategy here that if I have this problem in my stomach, if I just scream loud enough, it'll immediately get solved, and somebody will come. And then they find out that if I cry a little more, maybe I'll get picked up and held and cuddled, and I'll have a nice warm environment. It's a little cool in here this morning, so maybe some of you feel like going back to that. But uh, you de- this child begins to develop strategies, processing information from the environment and developing strategies and techniques to get those needs met. Now, the difficulty is, is when you take, it's one thing to talk about the pain of hunger or being thirsty or just the, the misery of being tired and various other, uh, on the good side, the various pleasures. It's one thing to talk about that in what we would think of as a normal scenario. But you see, when you take that pain and pleasure, and then you extrapolate out that, that out to its most extreme, when you have a, a young child whose parent dies, and they go through that tremendous grief, they're not old enough to understand the dynamics of grief. They're not old enough to understand death. They just know that this person who has been close to them and held them and been loving is no longer there and it's painful and it hurts and how am I going to deal with that? And they don't have the more mature uh, skills that you would develop later. And They don't know anything about God. They don't know, understand anything about God's uh, uh, timing and that God has a plan for every person's life and it's a perfect plan. And so that at the time of death... Uh, God has decided that that is the perfect time for that person to be absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And so they can't operate on that. They're not a believer. They don't understand anything about doctrine. So they have to deal with that pain in some way, and they develop a strategy for doing it. The same thing applies to various pleasures, and they decide what pleasures they can get easily that somehow will, will perhaps take care of that pain they're going through. And then we might extrapolate that out even further. And you go through various scenarios where there is abuse, where there is physical abuse or there is sexual abuse, all kinds of different scenarios that are horrible to think about. They go on in the homes uh, too often today and in many homes in this country, not just the homes of unbelievers, 
but also the homes of believers. And people come out of these homes and they have grown up in this kind of a scenario. And all along the way they have developed, just like every one of us has, various strategies for achieving what they think is happiness and stability and meaning and purpose in life. And that's what happens when anyone grows up and they go through those adolescent years. What are they trying to do? They're trying to figure out the meaning and purpose and direction in life. So all of this is a process in, in, in maturing. But if the only solutions available are human viewpoint solutions, then the end result is always going to be catastrophic. The Scripture will call it temporal death. Because even if the solution is socially acceptable, even if the solution is, uh, provides a modicum of stability and happiness, and it's not something that is overtly self-destructive, what the Scripture says is because it flows from the sin nature, it can have one and only one uh, result. So the sin nature, remember the sin nature has lust patterns. So we have someone growing up and from their early age, this sin nature is active. And it is influencing every single decision that is being made during the day. Now they may respond, a child may respond to pain and pleasure through personal sin. Or perhaps their trend is more towards asceticism and legalism. So they are trending towards human good. Now what you see is you can have a scenario where within one home, let's say down in the ghetto in some urban area, you have two children, the older daughter and the younger son. The older daughter has a trend towards personal sin. And so as that older child decides that the way to handle life's problems is through approbation, before long that child and her trend is towards antinomianism and lasciviousness, that older daughter is getting involved in illicit sexual relationships and ends up in prostitution, making her life miserable. And it's typical of the sociologists and psychologists to go and blame the environment because they grew up in a certain kind of a home without certain influences. But in that same home, you have a younger son grow up, and his trend is towards asceticism and morality. And as he gets older, he sees... Uh, maybe a priest walking down the street or some other religious leader and gets attracted to religion and starts trying to resolve problems in life through religious activity and through morality. And his, his, he's operating on human good. And so that son then, as he gets older, perhaps decides to go into some sort of social work or some sort of uh, become clergy in some kind of religious organization in order to help other people. But they have what made the difference was always volition. Now that volition was affected by the core sin nature and the various trends there. So that leads us to point seven, which says that as we grow, we develop various techniques and strategies for gaining our objectives. And these are related to, I think I have five different factors. Five different factors. The issue is always volition, but our volition is always being influenced by one or more of these factors. First of all, there are certain genetic predispositions. Just because you have a genetic predisposition doesn't mean you have to yield to that. 
genetic predisposition. We live in an age today when you hear, especially in the homosexual movement, a lot of talk about the fact that there's identification of certain genes, that if you have this, this gene, you're going to be homosexual. And yet you hear various stories that are never relayed in the press and never relayed on television of people who are in the homosexual lifestyle and they become believers and then they uh, turn from that because of doctrine and the application of doctrine in their life. And you can even have that from in, in the realm of morality. Now, this last week I heard a very articulate presentation of this on a talk show I was listening to on, on television. And a lady wrote in. She sounded like she was in her mid-40s because of some of the chronological data she gave. And she had been involved in a lesbian affair when she was in her college years. And she still, and she admitted that she still had the, the strong temptations at times in that direction. She's married. She has uh, adolescent children now. And she said, and I thought this was, the way she articulated it was so good. She, she obviously became a believer, stated that in the letter. And she said, I came to realize that God's plan for my life was not for me to fulfill every sexual urge I had, but for me to control those sexual urges through His power and to do what He put me on earth to do. And I thought that was very well stated. And that's that process of maturity. See, we have a sin nature that's constantly pushing us into those directions of autonomy and in the direction of the trends of our soul. And the issue in the Christian life is to learn doctrine and by walking by means of the Holy Spirit to control those urges and the sin nature. And that's exactly what this passage is talking about. But we have to recognize there are these certain genetic predispositions. That's why when you get a little older, some of you who, and some of us who are a little older, Every now and then we find ourselves doing something and we shock ourselves because we see or sense one of our parents in that activity and we are simply repeating what they did and it just stuns us. Now, some of you haven't gotten old enough to see that yet, but that's a preview of coming attractions. There are those genetic predispositions. Furthermore, we have sin nature lusts and trends. You have certain lusts and trends unique to your sin nature. Your siblings may be similar. They may be completely different. You may be very different from your parents, and you parents may look at your kids and wonder if they came somewhere else because their sin natures don't seem to have anything to do with your sin natures. There are, you also learn from observed behavior patterns. As you are a child, you are constantly processing information and you're observing the behavior of your parents and how they respond and react to life situations. And that's how you learn. You learn by imitation. That's scary if you're a parent. Then you learn from instilled behavior patterns. You observe your parent doing it one way and then you try it. And then they instill a different behavior pattern in you because they take you out behind the woodshed and they spank you for that or they haul you into the bathroom. I remember the first time I think I uttered, damn, I didn't even know what I was saying. Probably, I don't know I never heard my mother say it, but I probably heard my grandfather say it. He said things like that quite frequently. 
And it just came out of my mouth. I was about seven years old. And the next thing I knew, I had a mouthful of suds and dial soap. didn't taste very good. So they were instilling in me a different behavior pattern from the one I observed. So we not only have genetic predispositions, but we have observed and instilled behavior patterns. And then we just have personal likes and dislikes. You know, we just do something because we like it. There's no great deep psychological reasoning. It's not because we were dropped on our heads when we were a kid or because we were abused or because of anything like that. It just happens to be the trend of our sin nature and we like it and we enjoy it and to us it brings a level of happiness and pleasure. And then we get some doctor and we find out that that's all wrong. But those are the various factors that influence our decision-making process and why we choose certain ways to deal with the problems in our life. But the issue is always volition. Now, modern man, because of our psychological orientation, thinks that somehow you have to figure out all the whys and wherefores and go back to the root, discover where it came from, how it came from, what mama did or what papa did or whatever happened to you or what you saw on television that causes you to do what you do now. That's not what the Bible says. Never do you find anybody in the Scripture addressing the horrible consequences in people's lives on the basis of let's sit down and let's talk about it and figure out why you do what you do. You do what you do because you're a sinner and there's only one solution and that is volition. You have to learn some doctrine so you have some volitional alternatives. You have to learn that you have a new power source and that's the Holy Spirit and that you are going to walk by means of the Holy Spirit in doctrine by applying doctrine to your life and that is going to change your life. That's the process of the spiritual life. It shifts responsibility completely to your own shoulders. It's not what happened to you when you were a kid, because frankly, whatever happened to you when you were a kid happened to everybody else when they were a kid. It might not be the exact same thing. It might not, in your case, it might be much more horrible than in someone else's case. But I know of circumstances when I was growing up that happened with, with friends of mine in their homes, with their siblings, that they grew up in wonderful environments and their view of their parents is 180 degrees opposite of their siblings' view of their parents. One says they were never abused and the other goes through various psychotherapy counseling sessions and comes out and says that they were abused and, and they were beaten and everything else. And a lot of times it's just that one kid recognized that discipline in terms of spanking was necessary for their behavior and to train them and the other one was very rebellious And he just thought that discipline was abuse. And that's how he processed that information. So they they changed their perspective on things. It doesn't matter. We're all victims. Adam sinned. We're living in a fallen world. And because of that, we all go through various horrible circumstances. Some are much more worse than others. But the Scripture says there is one and only one solution. And that was provided for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that brings us to point eight. Point eight is that options are always available whether we realize them or not. Whether we are aware of them or not, or whether we want to admit it or not. There are always options available, and many times there there were options available which we either ignored or rejected, or even if we weren't aware of them, we could have become aware of them. The point I'm making here is that from the time you are a child, you are making decisions. 
Now, a lot of times we're not aware. We're not volitionally conscious. We're not aware we're making those decisions. We're making them. Sometimes they're just sort of a knee-jerk response from our sin nature, but we are making the decision. We want to do it, and we do it. And as a result, we're accountable, and we are going to reap the consequences of those decisions in our life. So as you grow up, you are going to set certain habit patterns in your soul for dealing with adversity, pleasure, pain, and adversity, I mean hostility, all through life. Some of those techniques are going to be very helpful and beneficial. Some of those techniques are going to be personally destructive. But they all have their root in your sin nature and a deep-seated commitment to make life work apart from God. Therefore, no matter how functional they might make you, no matter how much pleasure they might bring you, no matter how successful you might become as a result of that, God looks at all of those strategies that you develop from your sin nature and He says that they don't count for anything and they're all wrong. What are the mechanics of this? Let's turn to James 1.14. Crucial passage for us to understand when we talk about the sin nature. James chapter 1, verse 14. The warning is given in the previous verse. We'll start there for context. Let no one say when he is tempted. And the word here is pyrosmos, which can refer to an overt test or an internal motivation. But And here it's temptation from the internal sense. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt by evil. God is not dangling out the evil carrot for you to move toward. And he himself does not tempt anyone. For each one, that is, each individual person, the stress here is on the individual nature of the situation. We are each individuals in the family of God as believers, and we each have the same solution, which is the spiritual life that God has provided for us. But each one is tempted. And that word for temptation relates to the activity of the sin nature, whereby the sin nature solicits the soul to a certain response that is either going to be human good or personal sin. It always begins with personal sin. That's the temptation. It solicits the soul to personal sin, and once the soul goes negative to doctrine, chooses personal sin, then you may react immediately to human good, and from there on out, be involved in human good. Now, there are three sources of temptation, the Scripture says. Two are overt, and one is inside of us. The two overt sources of temptation are Satan and the whole demonic realm. And they usually work through an orderly system of ideas, which the Bible calls the cosmos. The cosmos is that orderly system of ideas promoted by Satan and which we sometimes refer to as human viewpoint or, or the Bible also calls foolishness. Now, the cosmic system may involve a whole array of ideas, some of which are antithetical to each other. But the bottom line is it promotes a way of solving life's problems 
that is totally independent of God. Now, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, it is not a sin to be tempted. You are always going to be tempted by your sin nature, and temptation is not a sin. Yielding to temptation is the sin. Whether you are yielding to that temptation in terms of your mental attitude, in terms of an emotional response, or in terms of overt activity, it is the yielding to temptation, not the temptation itself, which is the sin. So what we see here in the description of, of the sin nature in verse 14, you are first there is the temptation, and then there is the response to temptation. Negative volition to doctrine, positive volition towards the sin nature. Each one is tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, which is the motivating factor in the sin nature. Now, the interesting thing here that we should note is that the word for lust is epithemia. The Greek word is epithemia. E-P-I-T-H-U-M-I-A. Now, this word is not only found here in James 1.14, but it is also found in our passage in Galatians 5.16 and following, where it talks about the sin nature lusts against the Spirit. And there is this constant warfare, and the word epithemia is used to describe that warfare, that desire for control is the root meaning of epithemia. Then when, so we see that we are enticed by our own lust. The lust pattern is the internal motivation of the sin nature. Enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, when lust is united with negative volition, that is when it produces personal sin. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. That is personal sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, I want you to see this. This is very clear. That when anything flows from the sin nature, whether, it is, whether we're talking about personal sin or human good, because it has its source in the sin nature, God says that the end result is always going to be death, not life. Now, the Bible talks about various different kinds of death. It talks about physical death, spiritual death, the second death, positional death, that is the believer's identification with Jesus Christ on the cross, sexual death, and operational death. When we're talking about a believer here, we are talking about both operational death and temporal death, which is sin nature control of the soul. At this point, the believer says, yes, sir, to the sin nature I'm going to let you be my master. And so we're putting ourselves temporally back in slavery to the sin nature. It's not a permanent enslavement. And we can exercise our volition by using God's grace recovery procedure and confess our sins. And we're forgiven our sins. And we, at that point, we're freed from control of the sin nature. And we are back under the filling of God the Holy Spirit so that we can walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. But the Scripture talks about operational death for the believer and temporal death. For the unbeliever, there is no option. They are always in carnality and in temporal death because they are enslaved to sin. Now, the result is when the believer continues to operate in temporal death, the long-term results are devastating. 
as you let the sin nature control, whether it's in mental attitude sins, whether it's in overt sins, whether it's following your lust patterns in whatever way it makes you smile that particular day, the long-term result is it begins to fragment your soul. That's why the writer of James says that a person who is like this is double-minded, and the Greek word is disukos. Disukos. Sukos is the word for soul. Di is two. It begins to split or fragment the soul. And so that you become fragmented all over the place, and the more you fragment, the more you self-destruct. And this is why believers end up in psychosis and neurosis, and they make many foolish decisions, and they can end up living a life that is indistinguishable from an unbeliever, alcoholics, drug addicts, uh, sexual perverts, or they can end up like the Pharisees in the New Testament in moral degeneracy. But the result is that it is destructive to life, and even though they think they are finding happiness, it eventually is going to collapse. So this brings us to point number nine, which is that the consequence of all human viewpoint problem-solving is death. No matter how much it makes your life functional, the result is death. You see, for the believer, the issue is not functionality. The issue is not being able to handle life's problems and be a success. The issue is spiritual growth and maturity operating exclusively on the power of God the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, and handling life's problems through the principles of God's Word as extrapolated in the ten stress busters which we've been studying in James. It is God's problem-solving devices that are the issue, and unless you're solving problems that way, the result is going to be destructive. One thing about human viewpoint is human viewpoint tends to always focus on the enormity of the problem, the horror of the circumstances, and it always tends to emphasize the innocence of the person, and therefore it subtly shifts the blame to the person who causes the victimization. And that's why we have a society today that emphasizes victimization because that shifts responsibility from the person who is acted upon to the person who performs the action. And see, the issue is not who does what to you. The issue in life is how are you going to choose to respond to whatever adversity there is in your life. Because as Job says, man is born to adversity as the sparks fly upward. Point number 10, the only hope, the only real answer is biblical Christianity. It starts at the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. God poured out those sins. He imputed those to Jesus Christ on the cross. And during those three hours on on the cross, God darkened the earth so that man could not see the suffering that he endured during those horrible hours when he paid the penalty as our substitute on the cross. You see, the biggest problem we face in life is the problem of sin, because that underlies everything else. If we were still in the garden, if Adam had never sinned, we would still be living in perfect environment, and there would be no adversity, no difficulty, there would be no victimization, there would be no abuse, there would be no suffering, there would be no evil. So everything in life is the result of Adam's sin, 
and the introduction of sin into our environment and into our constitution. Now, as a result of that, because Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem we will ever face, which is the problem of sin, we know that Jesus Christ can solve every other problem in life. Not only that, we have specific problems, for our specific promises. For example, in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, we're told, seeing that His divine power, that is the complete omnipotence of God, He has brought to bear all of His knowledge and all of His resources so that He can solve every problem in the human race, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, not most things, but everything pertaining to what? Pertaining to life, that is, all of the issues of life, and pertaining to godliness, that is, our spiritual life, through the true knowledge of Him. That's the solution. It's through your relationship with Jesus Christ, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, by His attributes, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, that is, growing to spiritual maturity, reflecting the character of Jesus Christ in your life, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So that the only solution, it begins at the cross with faith alone in Christ alone, and it continues through learning and application of Bible doctrine. Because it is through Bible doctrine that we learn to define reality. When you're one month old or one year old or ten years old, you do not know any doctrine. You cannot define reality. So how have you constructed your view of reality? From your own limited resources that are bent on defining reality apart from God. So we all grow up with a distorted view of reality that is ultimately self-centered. And because we have this distorted view of reality, we have a distorted way of solving problems. And we have to reconstruct that. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is all about. We have to renovate our thinking. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. That is the thinking systems of the world, the human viewpoint strategies of the world, but be transformed. And that's the present per- passive imperative of metamorpho, which means to have a complete inner transformation. How? By the renewing or the renovation of your thinking. So you have to learn. See, from, from day one, probably till you got in your 20s, even if you were saved at a young age, you took in and learned all kinds of things and all kinds of human viewpoint. Well, now the whole process of the spiritual life is you have to unlearn that. And that's hard. That's why the, the spiritual life and spiritual growth is an intense process and it's a lifelong process because we have to unlearn all those habits, those habits of thought, those habits of response, those habits of emotion that we learned and that were instilled in us and that we chose from the time we were born until adulthood and that we figured out that this is the way to make life work. And in a lot of ways, it made life work. But then we knew there was more. And that came through Christianity and learning what Christ did for us on the cross. So we have to unlearn everything and we have to replace it with Bible doctrine in the soul. And then we have to make moment-by-moment decisions to apply that doctrine. 
And that brings us to point 12. Along with the Word of God, we have the indwelling Spirit of God who is the power of the spiritual life under His filling ministry and through whom all things are possible. And this is where we will continue next time as we go into the next verse. Here in Galatians 5 we read, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So we will look at what it means to deal with this opposition, this war on the inside. And then, too, in the next hour in John, we will look at how Jesus addresses this whole issue to the Pharisees when He said, you will know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for this look into Your Word and how we have the promises of Your Word. And we know that no matter what happens in life, the only resources that matter are the grace resources that You have provided for us, which we acquire at the cross. And apart from that, no matter what we do, no matter how well we handle life or how poorly we handle life, no matter how wonderful or how tragic our circumstances, we can never have true happiness, true stability, or find meaning in life. And yet through Your Word, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross who paid the penalty for all of our sins, because of all that He provided for us at that time, we can solve any problem, we can deal with any heartache, any tragedy, and we can have true happiness, stability in life. But that comes from learning and applying Your Word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity to do so right now. There is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. The Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we pray that you would help us as we concentrate on these things and see how they apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.